It's Friday, May 5th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A lot of pasta has been dumped in New Jersey. 15 wheelbarrow loads. I didn't know that wheelbarrows were a consistent measure. I thought they came in many sizes. But if you look at pictures on the web, but seems like acres and acres, a full field of spaghetti, macaroni, just sitting there in Old Bridge, New Jersey. Old Bridge, ancestral homeland of the COO of Peachfish Productions. I don't have a lot of time to dwell on that. I can't best the best pun about this on Reddit, which is whoever dumped this should be taken to the state penitentiary. But let me just say that I am convinced that the authorities will in fact, make an arrest because state troopers always get their manicotti. Do you think it was a gang or a perpetrator who acted tortelloni? This is a near calamity, but a far folly. I'm done here, and I'm going to take a hard turn when I tell you what's on the show today. In the spiel, the stats about missing and murdered indigenous persons, they represent as big a divergence from what can be documented to what is asserted as you'll ever see. But first, it's been 28 years since the Oklahoma City bombing. Jeffrey Tubin covered the story back then. He's out with a new book, Homegrown, which tells the story of Timothy McVeigh and connects the bombing to the rise of right-wing extremism up through the January 6th insurrectionists. Jeffrey Tubin up next. On April 19th, 1995, Timothy McVeigh lit the fuse. Now that fuse went from the front of the cab of a rider truck through the back to barrels of diesel gasoline wired to explosives, and it eventually blew a hole in the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. 168 people died. But as Jeffrey Tubin details in his new book, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism, the fuse can be considered to have lasted a lot longer than just the proximate cause of that truck and that explosion. Jeffrey Tubin, welcome back to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. I've always been interested in McVeigh just because of my age. He seemed like a bit of a shadowy figure and certainly a villain, but more questions than answers. But is what got you interested, his connection to the extremist movement of today? Is that why you wanted to write this book now? It is. Um, I did cover uh, the, the trials of McVeigh and Nichols, which took place in Denver uh, in 1997. And uh, I, I wrote about them, talked about them on TV. So it had always been in the back of my head, but I hadn't, it, well, it wasn't really top of mind until October of 2020, something very specific. Uh, when I saw the news that the FBI had arrested a bunch of people in the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer, Whitmer I saw that many of them were affiliated with the Michigan militia. The Michigan militia was the group that Terry Nichols, the co-defendant, and his brother, James, were loosely affiliated with in the 90s. And I started looking into that case, and I saw that these people, in some cases, the exact same people, were involved in the mid-90s and still involved in the um, broader MAGA movement in uh, the contemporary era. 
Several weeks later, January 6th happened, and that reinforced my belief that we are not dealing with just the isolated story of McVeigh and Nichols in 1995, that it is a continuous story of right-wing extremism with many of the same beliefs, views, and in certain cases, same people from uh, almost 30 years of, of connection. Right. And the book points that out, and the book uh, examines why the idea of isolated actors took hold, perhaps, in the imagination. And I want to get to all of that. But let's just establish some of the facts and talk about McVeigh. He was, as one could probably imagine, even if they don't know that much, disconnected from much of society, uh, certainly a loser. Life was not going well for him. But he also had great success in the military. And his uh, sergeants would say, if I had a platoon full of Timothy McVeigh's, life would be a lot better. What was it that made him so successful in the military and so unsuccessful outside of life? And does that explain some of his psychology? Well, you know, McVeigh is, as as you suggest, a, a really compelling character. I mean, he, he is uh, someone who was deeply evil, but also highly intelligent in a certain narrow way and determined, efficient, organized, and, and um, successful. I mean, pulling off this bombing was not an easy task, and it took tremendous organizational skills and, and motivation to do. And, and that is part of what came through in his military career. You know, what, the, the central political belief that McVeigh had was about guns, was about what he regarded as the inviolate Second Amendment uh, right of individuals to, um, to possess and use firearms. And, and that started from his teenage years. And he was a very good marksman. I mean, he, used, he, he developed a skill and he used it uh, in the military. He was very um, uh, highly regarded by his superiors. He was not uh, someone who uh, rejected commands. He, was, he, he volunteered for duty. He served in the fir first Gulf War, which was a very brief war. But in that very short war, he won a Bronze Star by using his gunner skills in a, in a Bradley fighting vehicle. But, but the turning point of his military career came right after he got back from Kuwait. And uh, he tried to join the Green Berets, the Special Forces. And he failed the tryouts for the Green Berets very quickly. He just didn't have the physical skill or stamina. And that left him as a sort of failed soldier in his own mind with nothing really to live for. And that's when, um, in, in 1992, he dropped out of the military and it really began his descent into um, uh, the, the, the crusade um, that led to the, led to the Murrah building. But, you know, it was, he was a skilled soldier and he was someone that his subordinates, uh, that his superiors uh, respected and appreciated. Crusade is a good word, but when you talk about guns, I want the listeners to understand that he wasn't just attracted to guns or he wasn't just obsessed with guns. Guns pretty much defined his life. He, almost all his money went to guns. He couldn't even afford them. 
Almost all of his socialization was at gun shows. He found meaning at gun shows. And when you write about his definition or his interpretation of the Second Amendment, he literally, I mean, this is what he tried to argue at the trial, but he believed it, that the Second Amendment justified what he did. America's attitudes towards the gun, if it could find an avatar in a human being in the 1990s, that would be Timothy McVeigh. To be sure. And, you know, to the extent anyone remembers much about Timothy McVeigh, I think they remember that he was outraged and angered by the FBI siege of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, which ended in this horrible conflagration on April 19th, 1993. 76 people died. And McVeigh timed the Oklahoma City bombing to the second anniversary because he was so outraged about that. What is less known, but but just as important and perhaps even more important, is that the event that prompted McVeigh to begin planning the Oklahoma City bombing took place on September 13, 1994. It was Bill Clinton's signing of the assault weapons ban. That's the political motivation for McVeigh. It was this fixation that they were going to take that the government was going to take his guns away. The, the, even earlier in his life, the, the great motivation for him, the inspiration for him was this horrible novel, The Turner Diaries, um, in which um, a, a evil federal government passes something called the Cohen Act. It's a deeply anti-Semitic book as well as a racist book. And the Cohen Act is about the confiscation of uh, private firearms in the United States. The, the, the issue of guns was central to McVeigh's uh, political worldview and his motivation. And it is another, it is a key linking uh, connection between McVeigh and January 6th. Because if you look at the January 6th insurrectionists and rioters, the, the, the issue of guns is absolutely central to their outrage about the defeat of Donald Trump in the 2020 election. I think we often interpret extremists' attachment to guns as, well, they love guns because it's a means to their end, which is something like the overthrow of the government. But you're pointing out that that's actually a little bit reversed. They would perhaps be okay with the government or not seek violent insurrection if they could just have unfettered access to guns? Well, you know, one, one of the examples of how the, the, the political dialogue on the right has moved uh, even farther to the right uh, in, in, the, in the last three decades involves just that point. You know, when the argument started to be made that the Second Amendment uh, guarantees individuals a right to, to bear arms. Um, remember, through most of American history, the Second Amendment wasn't interpreted that way at all. It was simply about what a well-regulated militia had, had access to guns. But anyway, the, the political dialogue changed. And the idea was you had a right to protect yourself from criminals uh, by having a handgun in your home. That's what the Second Amendment meant. But in more recent years, and, and McVeigh was a leading indicator of this, the Second Amendment has been interpreted to mean you have a right to a gun 
to protect yourself, not just from criminals, but from the government itself. You, you hear that from Ted Cruz. You hear that from Lindsey Graham. It is a wild and extreme version. You even hear that from Killer Mike and, you know, people on, I guess it would be called the uh, gun-toting left, this anti-tyrannical blood of patriots type argument. Right. And, and it just shows how McVeigh's arguments have um, carried more weight over, over, over time. And, and, and when you think about it, it's just, it's madness. I mean, the, the idea that, you know, having a rifle or a handgun or even an AR-15 in your bedroom is somehow a tool that can be used against the U.S. federal government. It's, it's, it's insane, but it is, it is a widely held belief today. Yeah, of, co- of course it's insane because uh, the idea that these flintlock pistols and muskets, front-loading muskets, would somehow over the years become what they've become and that the Second Amendment would apply to, I'll use the word unfettered again, unfettered access to them, that alone is insane. So why not have everything around the ideas and culture just be similarly warped? That's where we are today. So... The the machinations of how McVeigh did it are really fascinating. Um, I recommend that people read the book. I want to talk, I was most interested in drawing the parallels and talking about, like I did, the fuse that uh, went from Oklahoma City to, you traced it to Michigan, to January 6th. So first of all, the Turner Diaries, which you mentioned. Is the Turner Diaries, that very book, not books like it or not, ideas of that ilk. But is that very book still a motivator within right-wing extremist communities? Amazingly so. And and it is not a coincidence that after January 6th, uh, Amazon and several other online uh, booksellers decided to stop selling the Turner Diaries because so many of the people um, in connection with, with, uh, with January 6th um, were inspired, like McVeigh was, by the Turner Diaries. Uh, one of the phrases that's used in the Turner Diaries for the day of rebellion against the evil federal government is the day of the rope. That's what they call it. And, and, and the, the Turner Diaries, which for my sins I have now read several times, it's this horrible vigilante violence, mostly against blacks and Jews and women. And the day of the rope, is the day that the you know the the right wing revolutionaries or counter revolutionaries you know begin to fight back against against the federal government? If you look at a lot of the planning for the extremist groups who were involved in January sixth, the phrase "the day of the rope" comes up several times because they all know it and they've all read the read the Turner Diaries. So so that link between McVeigh and January 6th, you don't have to uh, you know, be Sherlock Holmes. It's the same book. And that's just one of many connections um, that, that you see between the two, two times. If Timothy McVeigh were operating today in our environment, do you think he'd be a mass shooter? That wasn't a popular thing back then. Oh, oh th- there were more than you think. Th- there, there were several. Yeah, there were several, but that wasn't... It does seem to me that we go in cycles where assassination seems to be the way that extremists express themselves, and then we harden those targets. And then there was bombing and post-McVeigh, we tightened up the ability of people to do what he did, and now maybe mass shooting is the is the outlet. 
Right. Well, well, one of one of the, the the big differences between now and then is that you know, as I mentioned, in 1994, uh, Clinton signed the uh, assault weapons ban that expired ten years later, and in the years since 2004, when assault weapons became uh, legal again, as you point out, the mass shooters, whether it's Uvalde or Buffalo or El Paso, you know, the AR-15 is the mass shooting uh, tool of choice. However, the biggest difference, the biggest form of evolution between McVeigh in 1995 and the right-wing extremists of today is the internet and social media. McVeigh said to his lawyers, I know there's an army out there, I just wasn't able to find it. And he did make you know, these half, half-assed attempts at outreach and finding allies, mostly at gun shows, but he didn't have the personality or the charisma or the ability to recruit others. And I don't believe there was a broader conspiracy. But the advantage, if that's the word you want to use, of the people who tried to kidnap Governor Whitmer and these mass shooters, they had the internet. So they could find like-minded allies in a way that McVeigh couldn't. It is not a coincidence that the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer was made over Facebook private chats. If McVeigh had private chats, he would have found others, but he didn't have it. And that's why he was almost alone just with Terry Nichols. Right. And lest listeners forget, the point, his point of the Murrah bombing was not just to kill people in a federal building, but to set off a revolution. And that's the Turner Diaries. That's what happens in the Turner Diaries is um, Earl Turner, the, the, the protagonist and diarist, he sets off a truck bomb outside the FBI building in Washington, which kills 700 people. I mean, it's, it's, it's very similar to the Oklahoma City bombing. And that's what sets off the rebellion against the federal government. And it's exactly what McVeigh hoped to happen. Finally, you don't really weigh in on this. And I don't know personally your thoughts on the death penalty, though you uh, lay out in the book how it worked and why it was applied and the fact that McVeigh essentially wanted it. But do you think that it was... A strategic and ethically correct choice for the government to execute McVeigh. You know, um, it's a good thing I'm not a politician because I would certainly be rightly accused of flip-flopping on the issue of the death penalty. I, I have I have held many different positions on the death penalty uh, over over my uh, over my uh, life life and career. Um, at the moment and for some time. I am against the death penalty, period. I don't think the government should be executing anyone. I, I just don't think it's it's the business of government. I don't trust our court system enough to uh, um, to, to come to the right result in, in every case, so I'm against the death penalty. However, when I was sitting in that courtroom in 1997 and the jury came back with a sentence of death for Timothy McVeigh, I'm not going to tell you I was disappointed. Uh, if you are going to have a death penalty in, in the United States, it is hard to conceive of a better use of it than uh, on Timothy McVeigh. The, the, the magnitude of the damage, the number of deaths, the, the, the premeditation, the lack of remorse, all of the factors that, that went into the death sentence for Timothy McVeigh 
um, were uh, justifiable in my view. Today, bad as he was, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't support the death penalty. But I got to say, uh, I, w I, I did not shed any tears when he was sentenced to death or when he was executed. And what do you think about strategically making mortars and so forth? You know, I, I don't worry about that particularly. I, McVeigh, he does have a handful still of followers today. Not, not, his ideas live on. McVeigh as an individual is not someone uh, widely regarded. And I, and I think that wouldn't change if he had been executed or not. I, I, I don't think he, he has a significant martyrdom because he was executed by the government. The name of the book is Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Jeffrey Tubin is the author and has been our guest. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Today, May 5th, is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Person Awareness Day. A couple years ago, it was MMIW Day, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Day. It has become Persons Day, but still the focus is on females, not Native American men, who have been murdered and who are missing. It is true that the homicide rate among Native American men and women, but specifically since we're talking about women, is higher than the overall murder rate in America. The rate, as recorded in Justice Department statistics, indisputable. Native indigenous women murdered at a higher rate than white women, about 50% higher, though a lower rate than black women, about 25% lower, and at a much lower rate than black men. Now, as far as the missing, well, that's where the facts get hard to come by, which is one of the complaints of activists who are drawing attention to the problem. Not just the problem, the word used to describe the phenomenon is consistent. KTVB in Idaho calls it this. They called it a crisis in Idaho, the number of missing and murdered indigenous people across the state. Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington state. So... I know we've started to make change to address this crisis, but we need to do more. Crisis. To read the statistics put forward, it does seem like a crisis. A prominent website dedicated to the issue is the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. Their homepage displays three big stats right up top. One, four out of five of our Native women experience some form of violence in their lifetime. This is true, or at least is borne out by Justice Department studies. They put the number at 84.3%. The next stat, Native women face murder rates more than 10 times the national average. Now that is shockingly high, if true. But it is not true. The very study cited as a source lists the homicide rates, total homicide rate of victimization per 100,000, 7.3 for American Indian and Alaskan Natives, 10.4 for African-American, 5.0 for whites. This is among women. And by the way, the total number killed in each of those groups is for whites, it was 2,578 women killed. For black women, 1,160. And for American Indian, Alaska Natives, as, as they call indigenous women, 36 killed. But the homicide rate is slightly higher than the national average for women. It's not close to double the rate. It's not in the same universe as 10 times the rate. 
I wonder why the website would quote a 10 times figure. There is one reference in the report, which was either willfully or honestly misunderstood, and it was some counties have rates of murder against American Indian and Alaska Native women that are over 10 times the national average. Some counties. It's true for all ethnicities. The next big stat on the site is homicide is the third leading cause of death among Native girls and women aged 10 to 24. Okay. But don't we have to compare that to the national rates for all Americans? Well, according to the CDC's National Vital Statistics Report, leading cause of death of American women aged 15 to 24, number one, unintentional injuries, number two, intentional self-harm, number three, homicide. So it is the same for Native girls and women as it is for American girls and women as a whole. So that's not actually the most cited source, the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. What is the most cited source, and a source that the coalition took some of their statistics, misreported as they were from, is a 2018 report by the Urban Indian Health Institute. They documented, or attempted to, the extent of the problem of missing and murdered indigenous women, as they called it then. But what this report found is actually not that powerful. So the researchers made FOIA requests to state agencies going as far back as 1943. And in all those years, they found 280 cases of murdered indigenous women. They also found 128 missing women. And though the data spanned 75 years, they did point out that 80% of the records that they got were from the last two decades. Two thirds were from 2010 through 2018. But still, no matter how you slice the data, it winds up to be an average of somewhere between 13 and 21 murdered native women a year. The FBI is already counting more than that. I don't honestly understand what this report even purports to be claiming. The researchers do a media analysis of what press attention the murdered women got. In general, the answer is not much, but the researchers also culled the reporting for references to drug use or alcohol, and they coded such references as, quote, violent language. They talked about blaming the victims and coded as violent language the 33% of stories that included coverage of trans women which misgendered the victim. Certainly regrettable, but considering these deaths go back decades, it's not that surprising. Now on to the missing women, of whom this report found 128 cases over the decades. This is an impression that I get. You might not hear the phrase the same way, but when they say missing and murdered women... I note the conflation and think that the idea trying to be expressed is that the missing are, if not murdered, then kidnapped, trafficked, about to or have met a horrible fate. But in fact, most missing people, uh, we're talking more than 95% of missing people, aren't missing to themselves. They may be homeless. They may have fled abusive homes. The fact that they're missing to some family member, however, does not mean a sad fate has befallen them. The National Crime Information Center keeps tabs of all missing persons. In 2021, the last year for which there are statistics, 521,705 people were reported missing. But in that year, 485,082 people came off the books of the missing. That is a 93% resolution rate. 
A small percentage of the missing were deceased. A tinier percentage, still much tinier, were murdered. But most simply, turned up or never should have been reported missing to begin with. The experience of Native Americans mirrors the experience of all Americans in this regard. Washington state became the first state to introduce alerts for missing natives. Here is the program coordinator, Kerry Gordon, talking to a local TV station about some of their findings and experiences. I would say the vast majority are runaway uh, youth. Most of the time they're staying with other kids or staying in, in a shelter somewhere and just haven't found their way back to family members. The Urban Indian Health Institute, the authors of that much-cited survey, did come up with a stat related to the missing that did seem shocking, however. This was a widely cited stat. It led off the report. They said that the National Crime Information Center, which is what I was talking about, reported that in 2016, there were 5,712 reports of missing American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls. But the U.S. Department of Justice's Federal Missing Persons Database, name us, only logged 116 cases. Wow, only 116 of 5,700. Now that's shocking, but it's not if you understand what NamUs is. It's the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. It's a forensic system. It's used to match, quote, odontology, fingerprint examination, anthropology, and DNA analysis. It matches that to bodies. They identify remains and match samples to bodies that are recovered. Aware of the scathing criticism that NamUs was facing, they rededicated themselves to correcting the issue of the undercount of indigenous women. They now have special reports on the missing indigenous. They prominently break out in their official tallies the category of the missing indigenous. It's the only ethnic category they highlight. Here is how the last report reads. Missing persons cases, total cases created in the month, overall, 555. Tribal cases created, seven. Unidentified persons cases, 106 cases created. Tribal cases created, two. There are now hundreds of missing indigenous person cases in the system, but it's not close to the 5,700 that was reported in 2016. And how could it be? If the implication or if the worry that those 5,700 missing indigenous persons were murdered, it would mean that a third of all murders in 2016 were of Native Americans, a group that makes up 2% of the population. Even if it was a tenth of that number, it would be a wildly implausible finding. There are reasons why so many missing Native Americans are not matching bodies in a database. The advocates point to the idea that society is ignoring them, but another explanation is that there just aren't that many bodies of Native American women that have gone unidentified, not because we don't care, but because there aren't that many bodies. There aren't that many deceased Native American women waiting to be identified. The issue of missing and murdered indigenous persons has taken off in social media with many young people posting messages and pictures with a red handprint across their faces. It's a striking visual and just hearing claims about the missing and the murdered, very hard to turn away. The facts are that native women do go missing at a higher rate than women as a whole and they have a slightly higher rate of homicide. Also, press attention is often scarce in these cases. I can't say that any death or any missing person who is ignored is something less than a tragedy, but a crisis? A national crisis? I mean, when you hear these claims of thousands upon thousands of missing and murdered, 
always expressed as a single category, any decent person should conclude that this is either shockingly shameful or is a shocking exaggeration. And there is a lot to argue for the latter interpretation. What's true is that higher rates of crime are committed against members of this vulnerable community, as is the case with all vulnerable communities. And I will read from a well-done study on this issue. AI slash ANs, American Indians, Alaska Natives, also experience higher rates of adverse childhood experiences, including child abuse and neglect and family and community violence than other racial ethnic groups, which they document. This increases their risk for other forms of violence, such as homicide. The risk factors for violence among AIANs are compounded by multiple and multi-layered traumas. The advocates in the MMIP movement are clear that there's a big problem and lack of data. I agree with that. There's poor data about all crimes in the U.S. with citizens and and news sites compiling databases that the government should be overseeing. And the data about indigenous people on tribal lands does seem to be much worse than other kinds of data because of issues like funding and overlapping jurisdictions. And we should take seriously everything that report talked about, about adverse childhood experiences and higher rates of abuse and neglect. And there's every reason to demand accurate data. And there are plausible arguments for using the urgency of social media and headline-grabbing phrases to convince public officials to devote more resources. That's all proper. But for media, either incurious or cowed, to present the conflation of murdered women, which are a few dozen a year, and missing women, which are very different from murdered women, it's irresponsible, it's misleading, and it's kind of doom-inducing. The idea is, if we create a crisis, maybe we'll get a few more resources, and resources are good. I agree, but as with so many issues of public attention and media urgency diverging from the documentable facts, there are costs to the creation of crisis. Costs that are somewhat adding up to a crisis of their own. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer of The Gist. Pasta area native Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>